episode of the Overdue Rentals podcast, the podcast where we talk about films that people don't talk about the same way they used to for some reason. Maybe they were big award winners. Maybe people never watched them when they first came out. We don't know why, but that's what we're here to discover. I'm Matthew Shuffman. And I'm Cinema Lens Mike Reyes. And I think we know why this week's movie, well, this week's Overdue Rental was overshadowed. And we'll get into that in a moment. But uh, Matthew, how are you? I'm, I'm doing great. And I'll tell you why I'm doing great. Because we have a lot of great guests that come to join us to talk about films that they're in or going to be in, have been in. And they're all wonderful. I would never put one person above another, but I am absolutely thrilled to have today's guest on, Mr. Tim Roth. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the folks at home may know Tim Roth. Uh, he's, he's been in a couple of big budget blockbusters like Pulp Fiction and Four Rooms. And he was also in some indie films like The Incredible Hulk. Oh, wait, sorry, I got that flipped. That's, that's my notes, that's my bad. Um, I you guess actually I'm just... called me. You actually caught me off guard there. I was just going to agree with you. <laughs> yes. You know what? The show is not good if you cannot get your your co-host off guard, but but in a nice way like that. No, 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 no mentions of impropriety or or questions of of film literacy. But when you when you throw in a joke and your host can kind of get tripped up, that's just that's chemistry right there. And Matthew will get me at some point and you'll be here to hear it because you are part of our loyal fan base that we just want to thank you. All of the wonderful, wonderful data we've seen over here at Overdue Rentals HQ, just the rental counter has been a, a place of love between us and also you, the listener. Hey, Argentina, how's it going? Anyway. Uh, yes. <laughs> Germany, the gates. Anyway. We have Tim in because he has does a new film coming out on January 28th called Sundown Ooh, written and by Michelle Franco. Sorry? I can't wait to talk about this one. Oh, I'm oh sorry, yeah, well, I stepped on you. No, 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 not at all. But, um, you know, and we will talk about it a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll try to, I, I would say, after, after we finish talking to Tim, maybe we'll have a little bit of, not spoiler, but we'll definitely be a little more in depth into what uh, we may talk about because I don't, I, obviously we're not going to talk a lot about it with Tim as well oh, because- no. Uh, we don't want to give too much away. No, 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 no. Folks, if you have any interest in seeing Sundown, uh, if you're a Tim Roth fan at all, just go see Sundown. Don't watch the trailer. Don't read anything about it. I went in this as cold as possible. Oh, and I, I found it to be really interesting. I went in completely blind. I will say, if, if just as, I mean, I don't even know how I would give a synopsis for people without, you know, not necessarily ruining it, without just like, yeah, I would say we don't even have to give a synopsis, I would say. No, I I didn't even read the synopsis because no. I just knew we had the movie coming up and I wanted to, I try to go in as cold as I can with some of these movies for the sheer fact that, especially with the indie movies, if you go in cold, there is a, there are some very interesting twists and turns that you will find, in, especially in a film like Sundown. And, but there are also twists and turns for things you may know about, such as the other film we're going to talk to Tim about, Rob Roy which was a new one for me. And I am so glad that I had finally seen this because I had known about it, but hadn't really seen it. And uh, this is going to be a movie that we're going to compare to another massive blockbuster that literally came out a month after, was in the same area of knowledge, same sort of similar area, area of the world. <laughs> yeah. And this was overshadowed pretty huge by a film that obviously was a hit at its time. And well, we'll discuss that more later. Yeah. But anyway, we have the amazing, incomparable Tim Roth waiting for us to just let him into the, the store 
Matthew, I think it's time we open up the doors and let Tim Roth come into the overdue rentals rental counter. And, and, you know, this is one that he picked out personally. We'll go into that more, but just, I want to thank Tim. We want to thank Tim Roth for being enthusiastic about his own filmography. And we suggested two other films. And then he came in and said, well, here's two other films. And they were great picks to pick from. And this was the one. So anyway, Tim Roth. He has so many great picks to pick from in general, beyond what we all there are movies that I forgot about that I just started looking about. Like, oh my God, I can't believe we could have, we could offer that one. But anyway. You're probably thinking Invincible, weren't you? Is that the name of it? Well, Invincible is definitely one of them, but uh, I mean, Gridlocked. Um, True. Yeah, I mean. Who would have ever thought Tim Roth and wasn't Tupac Shakur in that yeah, one? It's a, yeah, absolutely. Who would have thought that'd be a pair? Anyway. anyway. <laughs> let's get Tim in and to, to talk about these two movies. Tim, doors open. Come on in. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Yeah. I, I want to kind of just jump off and talking about the kind of balance to create a character like Neil, because as we finally learn what's really going on, up until that point, you have to basically, in essence, be portraying what could be a multitude of different attitudes, dilemmas, whatever it may be. Is it kind of hard finding that balance? Well, it's, it's the same way, same way, in the same way I've worked with Michelle before. Um, on one that he directed and I worked on one that he produced. Um, I know my character's story from his perspective um, at any given moment. Um, And then what we worked on and what we we tend to work on is um, kind of stripping away the artifice, stripping away uh, it's one. It's one of the trickier things to do, and and he he. That's uh, something that he's very keen on. So what you do is you strip away any kind of visual performance, in a sense, any sense of of um, the actor, you know, getting in the way of the of the uh, getting between the audience uh, and the camera, in a sense. So you're you're what you're what you're trying to get across is um, that it's that it's just me going through this, which is actually very very difficult. It's 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 weird. It's like um, it's actually it it actually feels more naked in a sense than mm. than uh, than uh, anything else that you do that I've done as an actor. So um, we knew the character. We knew what the character was, um, but that um, was up for grabs as we moved forward. So. Um, and I haven't seen the film yet because I want to see it on the big screen. So I'm going to do that thing. I want to see it properly as it yeah. was intended. So, but I know obviously my my side of it. But what I hear from what he did after we finished our portion of it, the you know the on you know the shooting of it, that and I, I've heard it from people who've seen it that it's a different film for each person, and it is very. Um, some people think it's a comedy. You know, mm. uh, which it may well be, by the way. Um, and some people think he's a, he's a psychopath, <laughs> so, which he may well be. But what I have, what I nailed down, or tried to nail down, was this is the character's beginning, middle, and end. This is what we know. Now we'll leak that um, to the audience as we go. And I don't know if that answers your question at all. <laughs> but it, it, you know, it, it's a very odd thing to to uh, be in one of Michelle's films. It's a very strange place to be. And I, you just embrace it and run with it. Very difficult, but it's good stuff. Well, that's definitely something the audience is going to have to embrace and run with because to your point of just 
talking about the nakedness of this story, yeah. we're given a we're given we're just really thrown into the action. We're given a bare setup of Neil as a character, and then I I kind of appreciated that. Well, I really appreciated that because going through the film, yeah. I'm still trying to piece together. Okay, what is his relationship with Alice and the children? And this is stuff that you know you you make it you throw twenty million dollars more at this movie, and you begin with a very pat foundation you give that whole first act to who they are and you mention all those things that come later on but since you're yeah. allowed you're in the world of indie film and you're allowed to play play with the audience more i appreciated sitting there asking these questions and wanting to know more about this character and is he do are we supposed to like neil well it's it's, it's an individual yeah it's, it's it's that's up to you and i do like that i appreciate that because more often than not now um we are given it's it's constant plot dumps all the way through in a, in a in a film um what i think uh michelle has tried to do is is give the audience the uh or you know assume the intelligence of the audience and, and you know they will they will read uh, like everyone reads a book differently they will read um they will read into it what they feel belongs there. And as a consequence, that, you know, it's challenging for an audience, but as a consequence, it's, a, it's a, a, an insane and wonderful journey. You know, it's a film. We should be challenged. We should be, um, we should come away wanting to discuss in a sense, you know, um, and, uh, and he, 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 yeah, he very often does that as a filmmaker. I think it's it's something where even though there is a, a clear certainty as to what has transpired to a certain point by the time they get to the end, I think a lot of people will always go that he still mishandled things, and that's something that you can connect to. But he's fallible. I yeah. mean, immensely fallible. So you handle things. I mean, life is improv. You know, you're you're winging it as you go. And, and so he is, uh, you know, he handles things, yes, appallingly at times, but, um, you know, what you, as the audience member, have to, have to um, try and decipher is whether it's intentional. What are his motivations? Are there any? Or is he just drifting along? Originally, the film was called Driftwood, which I, I thought f felt appropriate. You know, he's mm. drifting, just drifting along, and whatever happens to him, you know, uh, um, he goes with, and uh, I, you know, certainly from the moment we we encounter him, um, we don't know. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him, and uh, and those around him. Doesn't mean that he doesn't love them necessarily. I don't know, unless it comes across that he doesn't, which is interesting, <laughs> because a lot happens in the edit. <laughs> well, yeah, I won't say how I felt then, since you haven't seen it in full mm. yet. But I, I definitely had my own I, feeling, just man, like you said. I, and I think that's the point. You should. Yeah. What do you got? <laughs> well, I, no, I, he definitely cares about them. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Yes. It's just that in his state, there's only so much that he could that he could handle with dealing at that point. And so yeah. he just kind of handles but when it. Uh, when it but so prior to your understanding his state, his, you know, his prior to that, how, do, how does that behavior come across? Do you see what it, I mean? It changed every time. First, right. I just thought he was a dick. Then I'm just like, oh, he's probably just a little selfish. Then yeah. I thought maybe he has Asperger's or some sort of mental disorder. And then it just and then it just kept it kept building until I I realized what was happening. Yeah. 
It, it, Nobody it, rentals it, it, the it, podcast it, where we called him Rob the Dick. Sorry. <laughs> yes, it wasn't me. It was him. Yeah. Oh yes, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> you understand? We're just trying to bait the yeah, headlines by putting your name in there. But I think that's good. That that there you go. That's that's a prime example of what you were just saying. Is that okay? What did you think? I don't know. No, he was definitely. And so it it evolves. It has a life, you know, which which um, you know, film film for good or for bad should do you know should have that uh have it should create some kind of discussion if you're lucky it does if you're lucky it does well that's the kind of you know that's why what we love doing it over dear rentals because we kind of like going back to talk about films that maybe people don't talk about as much anymore and that's mm. a very similar thing what i think about of for your role in rob roy as, as archibald right. cunningham because he's another person that is technically your film villain in many ways but again, he has, he lets you in a little bit yeah. about what's going on behind him. And so it's, it's that balance again, of trying to find out where that comes in. Yeah, that was a very weird um, experience, quite, I, I, quite wonderful. But I did, I mean, just on a side note, I really thought I was gonna get fired from <laughs> the production <laughs> during, I, to the point where I was calling out my agent at the time and saying, listen, you better find me a job because uh, they're gonna, when they see this stuff back, they're gonna fire me. Because it was, it, what's revealed at the end when he takes his wig off is a very different person from the, from the person we're led to believe he is. And so, um, it, and it dealt with that foppish landowner, um, uh, uh, I know the yeah, you know, those that the, the political class, the landowning class, the enslaving class, it dealt with them. Um, and then to a sense, that's why I, I, I with the with uh, Michael, the director, wanted to shave my head under under the wig, you know, because I wanted suddenly to reveal that he was one of us in a sense, you know, in an odd sense. And so but anyway, I thought when the when the studio and I can't remember which one it was, would get with you know and they were they were proper studio i'd never worked with anyone like that before i i thought when they see what i'm doing they're just gonna fire me and replace me you know and it was it, it didn't work out that way we were doing um and we were i think it was i can't remember how many months with bill hobbs um amazing swordsman swords uh teacher um i think we did two months three months work on that like getting his getting his sword play up and running and and getting it right <laughs> It was a crazy time. I, 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 you know, I enjoyed it, but I was always in fear of unemployment during it. Yeah. Oh, that you can definitely see both the enjoyment and just the swordsmanship. I mean, uh, doing the research for this film, I remember Alan Sharp that said it was basically mm. a Western set in the Scottish Highlands. Yeah. When you watch those sword fighting scenes, it looks like real Flynn era swashbuckling, like right to just the, the actual look and the feel yeah. of the fights. Well, the thing, the difficulty with which me and Bill had to work on and, and his team had to work on was if you had someone fighting me with a broadsword, they'd be dead in a second. So the idea then, then becomes, and Bill was always good at um, sword fighting in character as an extension of your character, not, yeah. not, not of um, classes that you may have taken when you were at Eton or some bullshit like that. <laughs> um, so it was very much 
how would this guy fight? And and so it it became how can I tease Liam Neeson's character along? How can I just tease him, toy with him, play with him? You know, uh, inflict, um, you know, um, embarrass him. You know, in a sense, with his with his inability to catch uh, catch up with my movement and so on and dance around him and so on. So you know, it was it it was, I suppose, an ex again. He did it with Serrano as well, with Depardieu of all people. He did it with, I think he did worked on the Musketeer movies as well, Bill. Mm. He was, you know, very much in, in demand. But he, yeah, it was working out, okay, Tim, what's your character? Okay, let's try this. And we really went at it. We, we were very much in, in favour of drive-by sword fights. We thought that would um, slow down the whole, uh, you know, death toll. <laughs> as far as that was concerned. You really have to know what you're doing. Plus, you have to catch people. Yeah. <laughs> drive by sword fights, drive by jet ski assassinations. Okay, We've got it all yeah, here. Yeah. Very James Bondy. No, but that's yeah, you, like you were saying, you were afraid that they were going to fire you. So yes. you thought you were going so over the top, in essence, I'm guessing. Yes, and, and it was it was absolutely in character. It was appropriate. And Michael, um, the director, had to sort of, you know say, no, this is what we're after. But I was like, no one's gonna want it. I mean, it's so over the top and all that. And then, uh, and then people liked it. <laughs> so I was completely wrong. I, re I remember, uh, I remember my father, I, he saw it before me and he's like, have you seen Rob Roy yet? And I'm like, I was like, no, he's like, oh my God, Tim Roth just played the greatest like antagonist in, in a movie ever. And yeah. I'm like, all right, let's put this on and see what's, see what's happening. Yeah, skinhead in a wig. Yeah, and uh, one of the best things, one of the best things I have to say on the on a sort of uh, off the film, but on it was it it did it, it did get awards and I got awards and nominations and all that stuff for it. But the best one was I was in um, London for an award thingy, and um, was introduced to Elizabeth Taylor by I, you, Peter Usnoff on stage and Elizabeth Elizabeth Taylor in it. I, mean, I was good. I was golden at that point. I'm, I'm very much the old movie fan. I'm very, very much that. What you call old movies, so that's changing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So I'm glad I dropped the, the Flynn reference in here then. That just Flynn, yeah. off friends at this well, point. I heard, I heard Flynn was quite, a, um, um, you know, not, not, not much for rehearsals. Do you know what I mean? Rathbone was the guy, right? Wasn't uh. Rathbone the, the swordsman? He was really good. But Flynn was a great swordsman, but... You know, he didn't show up for rehearsals. <laughs> <laughs> I did stab Liam Neeson, actually. Um, oh. Yeah, because he um, he was he he was the lead in the film. I had loads of time to practice. So I was I was working with his double. This amazing guy I actually really looked like him as well. But I was working, you know, rehearsing with his double a lot. So I had my moves down. But Liam was playing catch up. With us, so at one point he went to parry a, a move that I did, and I, um, my sword went in his between his finger and up in here. Yeah, and he and it was like, oh my god, medic, you know, and uh, they're blunt-ended swords. They were they were carefully crafted. They weren't. Uh, they, I made it out of uh, aluminum, I think. Um, anyway, it, that was super pain, painful, but I did get to stab Liam Neeson. And then shortly after that, I was doing a crap movie and I got stabbed in exactly the same place myself. 
Ooh. So, karma. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but you look like still, I, I still got the Stanley Visa. I got to Stanley and that's all right. I think, I think, um, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, he's, what is he, 6'4"? Yeah, I was like, hello. Yeah. <laughs> it was just preparation for his role in Phantom Menace anyway. Oh, my God. So... I have to ask, as we're sort of wrapping up oh, yeah. our time with you, which I am, I am just, I'm, I'm amazed it's already gone so fast, yeah, but yeah. you have been a longtime collaborator with Quentin Tarantino. And mm -hmm. by the way, I still want to see those scenes that they cut from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I thought it's the best billing you could get. My, my son went to see it because my son worked on the film and he went to see a cast and crew. And he said, oh my God, dad. And it was the, um, Tim Roth. It was the billing he put up there at the front or whatever, but he went cut after <laughs> the billing on the thing. Apparently, I haven't seen it, but yeah. So do you happen to know, uh, are you hoping to be in Quentin, what he's calling his last film? And do you think it, the 10th Quentin Tarantino film really be the last Quentin Tarantino film? He's usually true to his word. I mean, when we've spoken about it, I mean, basically all his actors are on standby. Um, you you know, that's just how it, how it goes. If he calls, you're up. And you and you're in, you know, and 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 not to be offended if you're not. It's just it's the gang. Me and um, the gang from uh, Hateful Eight still have a text thing which, which we started on set when we were shooting it. We're it's such a tight group, so we are very um, no, we're very uh, aware that that it possibly is. Quentin has always said he didn't want to just um, keep making films that got gradually worse as he got older, which. You know, um, I you know he's true to his words. So if this is the last film that he makes, and there'll be other things that he does, I know that oh, yeah. for sure. Um, then we're all just standing by, wherever we are in the world, we will go. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, you know what? He he wants to go out with a bang. I know that, and he will. He will not go out with a whimper. He's an amazing guy. And then a quitting signal will just go up and everybody's lined up, ready to oh, go. This, right, in hand. Just, if the phone rings, you go, what? <laughs> or, ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, you, have, you have a special ringtone set up for it so you know, so it doesn't make it hard. I haven't done that. I should do that. <laughs> Ooh, 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 we got to help pick the ringtone here, or, or at least, or at least give, give uh, uh, input. Um, I want to say the, the Hateful Eight theme, perhaps, maybe. Uh, I, I think Pulp Fiction's too on the nose. I just say, I just say, record Quentin saying something you want him to say. Yeah, maybe. The bottom line, you're absolutely standing by, and we, we really, I mean, he's loved by, by his actors, so that's where we're at. Well, thank you so much for your time for talking to us about these films. Hopefully next time we'll get you back. We'll, we'll cover Vincent and Theo as well. <laughs> and maybe for, I'm, 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 the, I'm the idiot that put in four rooms, so you can blame me for that. Oh, yes, but Stoner movie. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I think you need something stronger than that, considering how that goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cannot wait to see you in She-Hulk, sir. There you go. <laughs> Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks. Tim Roth, ladies and gentlemen, just it's it's another he is another one of those people that, like you said, can't really put any guests. We can't really rank these guests yeah. because everyone we've had on here has been wonderful in their own way. And also just sometimes time constraints yes, get in the yes. way of things. And I will admit, I was nervous because we're talking two movies and we had such a finite amount of time with Tim. But just as you see in his performances, the man really knows how to 
fill a space and facilitate a conversation while also giving some really, really good answers. Like if you're a journalist or a podcaster, time dilation is such an amazing thing to look at when it comes to talent. It's also something where with everybody we speak to, granted, we've had the opportunity to talk to some people for a much longer length of time, some that could have went on longer, some that will go on longer when we have them back again. Um, but this is definitely, and I would love it with everybody, but this is definitely one of them we finished. And I'm like, I, uh, I, I don't care. We could have just talked about like mashed potatoes or something. I just wanted to talk yeah. to him for, for forever. Cause it was what an absolute joy that was. Yeah. And uh, uh, by the way, in case it wasn't clear with the, the internet audience, the whole dick thing was just a joke. I mean, I'm not talking but, about Tim. I'm talking about the character. Of course. <laughs> of course. Neil is just uh, uh, Neil and uh, Archie are just very interesting, oh. complex characters that, you know, you're watching them and they're right from the beginning. And this is another really interesting thing I thought about when we, I was really thinking about these movies. These are both characters where they're introduced in one certain sort of way, in a certain sort of context. And we're led to believe that they are of a certain kind. Yeah. And it's, you know, you see Neil with just the very sparse opening of Sundown and then Archie with a very traditional sort of, oh, this guy's a fop. I don't know if he can really fight in Rob Roy. But then through the course of these films, Rob Roy in a more traditional sense, but Sundown in a very experimental indie sense, we see these men unfold in ways that really contrast what we thought at the beginning. It was very much a sort of clash of perspectives with the preconceived versus who these people actually were. Well, what I find interesting about Neil and Sundown specifically is that, again, once we do find out what is, I mean, I, I, I said it, I said the term what's really going on. Of course, there's a lot more to than just like what's going on because there's, other things that we have seen, so we kind of know what's going on, but what's going on with him? Uh, even after we learn about it, I still wonder if his current predicament, we'll put it that way, um, also is affecting the way we still see him more so on the surface level, because even though you do know what's going on, you can understand where his motives may be going, who's to know before these things transpired that maybe he was a little more, maybe he wasn't even, maybe he was actually the opposite. Maybe he was more of a dick. Than, than we saw him. Maybe he was maybe he was a really cruel person, but this melted him out a little bit. Or he could have been really happy, but just seeing him in this kind of like almost blank slate state. Like I wonder if that was him the whole life or not. No, I, I same thing. I mean, now that you mention it, that's a really good <clears throat> sort of thing to head into this because the nature of the character. Again, we don't want to ruin anything because I went into this no synopsis literally my first ex exposure to this is tim roth kind of stubbly sunbathed like just sitting there smiling and he's watching these two younger actors swimming in the water and oh what well i mean technically the first time you first see him he's not really smiling he's just staring at some fish dying and he's oh, right. like blank blank faced <laughs> yeah well just our first introduction to this character I go into this and I see him interacting with his co-stars and I'm thinking, okay, the way that this looks, I think I know how these people are connected. And then throughout the film, it's breadcrumbing you. And if you read the synopsis, if you really 
I mean, some people may, may criticize it for it. And I had a brief moment where I was like, oh, well, you know, if you have to say it in your synopsis and you can't get it without with watching the movie on its own, is it really blah, 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 blah. But no, I appreciate the fact that we don't know how these characters are related in the beginning and slowly you are getting a greater picture and things are being breadcrumbed. And especially, yeah, especially since, I apologize to cut you off, but I didn't want it because I don't want to lose this because I'm going to forget about it if we do, no. if I don't. But especially since in that one scene where he's at dinner, with the person he met and he explains very specifically the relationship, but you don't know at that point still if that is actually the relationship or not. That was literally a note I made while watching this movie. Cause you're like, you're like, okay, is cause traditionally what you're expected to think of what's going on based on whatever goes on in the world for the most part of what movies usually tell you, you expect that to be a lie. And yeah. I won't say if it's a lie or not right now, but you know, you, you find out fairly soon enough. And, and I'm, well, yeah. so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, should I just expect it's going to go where I think it does? And then, yeah. Yeah, I wrote it several times. I wrote down in here, it's like, okay, is this person A or B? Is Neil a shit? And then it's like, literally, oh, he did this. Oh, well, I guess he is. And then it's like, wait a minute. Who's, who's, uh, f whose mother died? Because there, there is a, a death in the film where th th that's, that's not really a spoiler, but a, someone's mother dies. And even that is thrown into question. It's like, okay, whose mother died? Uh, why did this happen? How are these people related? And it's just, there's all of these questions that are left open and you're constantly looking for clues for this while you're just watching Tim Roth just, hang out basically and that's not a that's not a a, a disservice that's not a, a slight to this movie it's just look i'll watch tim i'll i'll watch tim roth hang out in a movie i would love quentin tarantino's final movie is just tim roth hanging out with some of the other tarantino cast like you could probably have all of them on a beach somewhere drinking beers and maybe there's a random jet ski shooting every now and then and that's just that's your movie that's it what, sign me up what i find interesting though and we didn't really get to talk to this about this because we, again since we only had him for so long even if we had him for longer, I'm still I'm still trying to delve into his performance and his views of everything. What I found interesting is I went when I was looking some stuff up. I actually read there was a note from the director Michel Franco to where was where did it first was it was it Venice or was it Telluride where it first premiered? I can't remember now. I want to say Venice. I think it was Venice. And there was a note and his very specific speech, not speech, but his very specific note about the film was trying to search for this idea of how a place he grew up in because he grew up in around Acapulco how it is can both both be the most beautiful place in the world but is now kind of being destroyed or for a while has been destroyed by you know kind of poverty of yeah. the actual locals and I'm like that's great and all but I was so wrapped up in trying to decide about the character specifically that I didn't know if I then fully put it into the rest of the picture into that feeling of what he was trying to present. And while I could come up with a few things, I'm wondering how many people are going to go see this, whether they read about it or not. And just like us, just kind of be obsessed because there are other people in the movie, but how can you not be obsessed with what the hell is Neil doing? It's one of the most mysterious non-mystery movies ever because everything else plays really straightforward. Like when things are laid out, and when connections are made and when certain incidents happen, we are there un unambiguously, we know what is happening as it happens, 
we know that when accusations are made or questions are asked it's, and certain things, it's like, oh, no, 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 that's not what happened. But because we were led into this character to a certain, in a certain point of view and a certain mm -hmm. angle, through the, the real mystery is the person, not the event. I will say one thing, and then, well, then I think we should move on to talking about Robert Wood's to do because we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I was just the more we talk too. about Sundown, the more we're going to want to try and ruin things to people who haven't seen it yet. But Go see Sundown! The one thing I will say about Sundown and what you just said about certain accusations, there was one accusation, like literal what you would consider an accusation made by somebody else in the film. Again, I'm not saying specifically what it is, that's the one thing that when I heard it, I said, just now, I said, they're not going to, that's not it. That's definitely not it. They're not going that way. Um, and that, that being an actual accusation of him being involved with something specific. Yeah. Um, and, and I was just like, I, 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 I never bought into that. I don't know if anybody will. Uh, I don't know if you did or, or anything like that. That's one thing I said like that. Yeah, now that's the one thing I was certain on the minute it was said, that's not the case. <laughs> but with all that being said, so this is your first time seeing Rob Roy. Aye. Now, I, before I ask about your first initial thoughts on the movie as a whole, I will say exactly what I said to Tim uh, in the interview, which was because when it came out, I remember I hadn't seen it yet, and my father had seen it and came back, and it's just like, he could care less about the rest of the movie. He was so obsessed with Tim's performance. That he's like, oh my God, you have, to see, you have to see it, like right now. You have this to was go see it. Major Hollywood break, wasn't it? Well, I mean, this is this is after Reservoir Dogs. Oh no, you're right. This is after <laughs> um, you know a few other things that you know had him on like the map. But it's definitely no, you're absolutely right. I mean, he got nominated for every single award uh, show that was available, and it was probably maybe where a certain audience who may have not known may have become seen his face, even not knowing it because of that. But. And my, my father, my father will say to this day that Tim Roth is one of his definitive favorite actors of all time. Um, Kinda hard not to. And just to like have my father just like go crazy. I'm like, all right, let's go see it. So that's that's how I originally saw it. I mean, granted, I still wanted to see it. It was still like something because again, this is a film that was when it, and we will we will go in very briefly into why. I'm sure a lot of people know already why it kind of didn't get as big as it maybe should have. But, hey, if you don't know, you may not have a brave heart. Oh, uh, oh, die! <laughs> but this is this this is this is a massive movie. This is a massive release, and at certain point, people stopped talking about it. And yeah, Braveheart came out a month after. So even though people may have seen it then, it didn't make a difference. It took over the entire discussion of the world. People forgot about old movies. Rob Roy was released April seventh, nineteen ninety five. Do you want to guess when Braveheart was released? I'm sorry, say the date one more time, specific date one more time. Okay. Rob Roy was released April 7th, 1995. May 15th. Close, May 19th. Which is really interesting because quick little trivia, a little, little nerd note. Um, May 9th, 1999, Liam Neeson kind of had his revenge when he was part of this little indie film called Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace, not Phantom Menace. Sorry. Oh, that's actually a good, that's actually a good one. <laughs> oh, that's an old one. That's like internet. That's, that's probably, probably like internet 1.0. Yeah. Whatever. We'll take, we'll take credit for it, you know, patent pending overdue rentals. But that's what's even weirder is the week that this came out, 
April 7, 1995. There are, there are a couple other movies. Uh, Disney releases a goofy movie. Uh, 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 which, is big, which is really big with, with a certain millennial sect right now, or has been. That's like that's yeah. like their life for a lot of kids. Yeah, um, you know, they can have it. Um, but they weren't, they weren't going to see Rob Roy at the time. Well, they weren't going to see Don Juan DeMarco either. Oh, my God. Also out this weekend, but 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 there was there was another movie. There is this little you know upstart from this director named Michael Bay. Uh, he finds this guy Will Smith and this other guy Martin Lawrence and releases Bad Boys oh. on April seventh, nineteen ninety five, and obviously that was the thing. But if I remember correctly, Rob Roy might not have been too far behind, and uh, again made for twenty eight million, just ekes by with thirty one point six with a gross and then to make matters worse Braveheart opens a month later and Scottish history just becomes overtaken by Mel Gibson's almost three hour I think it's almost like literally under yeah. just under three hour epic of you know lives and freedom and I don't know I think I like Rob Roy better well there's a few things that I find funny slash interesting about Rob Roy and the fact that and that's no slight against Braveheart. Braveheart is is a masterful film. But but like Rob Roy, as an actual historical figure, whether you want to believe a lot of the tales are folklore or not, uh, has even though you didn't know about it, has maybe before Rob Roy, three or four films made about him, or made as him as as, as actually the actual main character. Um, I mean, this is going back to the twenties, at this point. But beyond that, which you also, I had read it too, and you had brought it up actually when we were talking to Tim. Um, you know, the director had 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 thought about it as like a western in Scotland. And what I what I find so interesting, sorry, it was a screenwriter Alan Sharp. Screen, I'm sorry, screenwriter. What I found interesting about the movie, and again, I forgot it because I had to rewatch it because I hadn't seen it in so long. And I think a lot of people would expect whether whether you see trailers or not that it would be very much in certain veins of a Braveheart where you're going to see like epic battles and, you know, like these, you know, long drawn out fight sequences, but that's really not what it is. And I don't know if maybe not people were not expecting it or expecting it and how they may have felt about that when they saw it. Or again, Mike, since this is your first time, how you felt about it after seeing it. Well, how I felt about it is I was surprised reading that because there's the one of the many tavern scenes where you see Liam Neeson sitting there with, with his compatriots. And just, that was literally the thing I thought of. It's like, wow, this is real. This is the Western angle. But then you still have beautiful, picturesque shots of Scotland. Beautiful Highland cows just being herded. And then right from that first standoff, someone who has seen Braveheart first and saw this second may have thought, oh, so this is where there's going to be the huge fight and the big confrontation. But Rob Roy doesn't want to fight. And when he does, it is accurate. It is quick. And you see that when he, he first uh, re retrieves the, the cattle. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, which also, I want to I stop. And I really wanted to ask Tim this, but we didn't have time. Because I don't even know if he knew the answer or not. Because I got really confused. Because, again, I hadn't seen the movie in a long time. I'm sitting there watching it. And the man, I can't remember his last name, but the man he kills is Tom something. I thought it was Peter Mullen. I thought he was in there for a brief second too. I thought he, I thought he was Tom, and looks like I thought Graham McTavish was in here at some point. Then He's I a, look at, but then I look at the, then I look at the credits, I look at IMDb, I look at everything, 
not only is Peter Mullen not listed for the movie, but that character has not have a, does not have a credit listed anywhere. So I don't even know who did play him. And it maybe was Peter Mullen. I have no clue. Wow. That's, that's, that's an interesting mystery there. <clears throat> Plus, like, that's the thing, again, uh, uh, with so many other things, just thinking about the idea, because again, just like you were saying, this is not Tim Roth's first film. It's maybe his first big film. As he mentioned, he was afraid that they were going to throw him off because of what he was doing. So it's obviously a place where he felt he hadn't maybe been before in certain senses. But he's still proven at this point. He's still a great actor. We know it. But like spending all day with Liam Neeson, Faye Dunaway, <laughs> Jessica Lange. I said was that Faye Dunaway. John Hurt. Jessica Lange, John Hurt. Brian Cox. Cox. You know, just like, just them alone. Like, how do you not, like, just relish in whatever you're doing at this point? I don't understand how you cannot. There's a beautiful thing about Ryan, Ryan Cox. And uh, on the internet, I forget what magazine it was. I want to say Esquire, but it might have been someone else. There's just a whole series of videos with Brian Cox, full Scottish accent, natural as the day he was born, pronouncing Scotch names correctly. And well, it is a treat. This is something I always found interesting about Brian Cox. Again, I'm a Brian Cox fanatic. I love Brian Cox. Man's a chameleon. We need him on the show. But what I always found interesting about him is, you know, for me, obviously, or maybe not obviously, and maybe not for me, but I think I may have come, I can't remember when I first saw him, but I was much more used to him when he was doing films where he's playing with American accent. And I always noticed that he had his lip kind of like, was kind of a, a jar a little bit. Like it, like it looked like he had kind like Bell's Palsy or something like, like that. This. His only does that for with his American accent. I think I know exactly the first time I saw Brian Cox, and I think it was X2 playing. Oh, I, saw, I definitely knew him before that. Yeah. But, yeah. Or that's the first time that I really truly remember because between X2 and then Born Supremacy, it's just I'm used to him kind of sort of talking like this. And it's very much, oh, you're gonna blow the whole operation, Wolverine. And then you hear his actual accent. It's like, wow. Well, I mean, I definitely like I had seen him in Manhunter in like 1990 well i watched it in like some like the early 90s or something like that um but i may have not connected him later on you know the things at that point yeah. but i definitely seen him for a long time but uh, i always felt that that whole thing with his lip is only when he did his american accent i don't know if i'm right or not because every time i see him doing his non-american accent doing his normal accent or another non-american accent it's it's less pronounced i'm really looking for that now all right anyway back to rob roy though Succession fans help us out here what i found interesting also though about the movie again this is you know I'm not going to argue and complain about, you know, casting an actor. Oh, he's, he's got to be Scottish. Because, again, Liam Neeson's Irish, not Scottish. But does a and, real bang-up job. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, I think no matter what, what language he speaks uh, or what accent he speaks in, you always hear him under it, and you don't yeah. know where he's from, technically. He does hide the Irish a little bit here and comes out. But at other times, I'm like, no, I don't know. But anyway, again, it's like the idea of, of Jessica Lange because what I found funny was the very first person who you had a close-up of is actually Eric Stoltz. Yeah. And I don't, I'm fine with it. I don't care if he's in the movie and I don't care if he's playing a Scotsman or anything like that, but since showing him, especially in a movie called Rob Roy about Rob Roy, where Liam Neeson playing Rob Roy, he's the, like the one you, like he kind of gets the hero shot first. I'm like, that's weird. And also this was not too long after Pulp Fiction, if I remember correctly. And Eric Stoltz is very much looking like he did in Pulp Fiction. So that may throw off people where it's like, you're half expecting him to have a hypodermic needle in his hand in case a cow falls down. And Tim Roth also was in Pulp Fiction. 
Yes, very much so. Uh, again, something else we brought up in the in, in the interview is the fact that he just has that rich sort of connection with with Quentin Tarantino, and I love that story about how there's basically the the QT text chain, and like if you're in on it, you're you're basically on standby. I, you know, uh, it's funny whether you get cut or not. Until he bought it up, I forgot that it showed him with the credits saying "cut scene cut," like uh, very prominently. I, I I almost forgot that happened until he mentioned it again. A scene that's actually back in the book too. Well, I mean, I'm sure it would be, but I don't know. If, like you said, we don't. Who knows if you'll see it? I'm, I don't. I can't imagine how how it wasn't on like the original Blu-ray release. I don't know how you just like well, throw it on there. That's because they they were kind of teasing that it might be another Netflix deal, like how they got Hateful Eight extended into like a series. Yeah, but Hateful Eight was technically just the roadside edition right which we actually got to no, see in our press no. readings. it's not the roads the, the roadshow edition was just an intermission in the middle which at the length the movie was at was kind of useless but i get that it was thrown in as like a design flourish i loved it sworn there is a almost four hour version that they broke into episodes on netflix i could have sworn i mean i know we didn't see four hours but i could have sworn what we were shown in the press screenings was longer than the initial release not by much like literally they just throw in an intermission and a couple other things like and i know they they cut it for the traditional theatrical but the extended cut that's on netflix is like four episodes about an hour each oh i never i never watched it <clears throat> well clearly we have another overdue rental i don't know about that that's a big that's a big film with people nowadays <laughs> but the extended cut no just hateful eight in general i i i know um but anyway <laughs> Like, I, I love the fact that he was worried about being fired from the film. Because, yeah, I mean, I think that initial scene where we get him is so ridiculously foppish. And, and that's what he meant to. But, like, it doesn't, it doesn't carry that way through the entire film. It gets pulled back a little bit at times. It's still there. But it's maybe not as pronounced. Um, but I love that he felt that maybe what he was doing. And who knows? Maybe somebody was a little bit like, I don't know, but they seem to like it. I mean, the man, uh, this was, this was, he didn't win the Academy Award. I think he won the BAFTA. I, I don't think he won the Academy Award or the Golden Globe, but this was something where, you know, who actually, do you have in front of you who, who did win? Uh, so the supporting actor went to Kevin Spacey for the usual suspects that year. Thank you. Goodbye. Should have been nominated for lead. Another, another very good point but yeah who else who were the other nominees let me look that up because i don't have the full field in front of me but that will be a very interesting comparison to have let's see well you know I'll, I'll tell you what's sad is the fact that i never looked this up until we just started talking about it i just it just didn't come to my mind <laughs> oh this was a good year besides obvious monster in the room um brad pitt for 12 monkeys Oh, that's right. That, see, Ed I Harris for Apollo sorry, 13. Wait, I'm sorry. Who was, I was talking about you. Who was that? Ed Harris for Apollo 13. Okay. Yeah. And then James Cromwell for Babe. I could have sworn Ed Harris won, actually, in my mind. Like, obviously, he didn't. But in my mind, that's how I remember it going. That's a hell, that's a hell of a field. Well, Best Supporting Actor used to always be, used to always be the toughest competition. Yeah, now you can pretty much call it out in a heartbeat. Well, now, well, now I just think all nominations for all, again, I don't really care, but I think all nominations for everything are just all messed up. It's been like that for a while. Like, 
there are things that should not be even nominated that get nominated. Or again, I'm not going to go into it because like, it makes me so angry. But I mean, we'll see what happens when they finally release the Academy Award nominees. But the fact that no major, except for the New York City film critic circle and the LA film critic circle, not one award ceremony or you, you know, uh, accredited um, group is giving Catherine Hunter the award for Best Supporting Actress when she should not even be have a competition. It should just be her and that's it for Tragedy of Macbeth. I don't understand how she's not nominated for everything and hasn't won everything. Madness. We, we may just have to, to splinter off at some point and talk about our, our reactions to the Oscar noms when they come out. But yeah. Episode alert. Maybe. I mean, this is, it's also what's really interesting is this. Okay, so we mentioned Braveheart and how it basically steamrolled things at the box office. You look at the 68th Academy Award nominations, nominated for stuff like Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay written directly for the screen. Uh, and it wins almost all of those. Usual Suspects won for Best Screenplay written directly for the screen. But Gibson takes Director. Uh, best Picture goes to Braveheart. And then Rob Roy, I think the only nomination it got was Tim Roth's Best Supporting Actor nod. And again, he lost to Kevin Spacey that year. Well, look, I'm I'm not saying that Rob Roy is a bad film, but I don't think Rob Roy is, was the most exceptional film ever made. I don't know if I would consider it uh, everything in it to be award worthy, personally. Yeah, um, it's a great movie. It's yeah, fantastic. I- and I, th- I think it's one of those movies that even, even with something like Braveheart just a month away, put Rob Roy on and think about where we are today with, and I, I know we talk about it to death and I'm talking, not talking about you and me, I'm talking about everybody in the world. And I, there are beautiful films that still come out. There's beautiful cinematography being made out there. And I'm not trying to downplay other films that come out, but look at what that's on screen. And then look at anything here that has its color correction done, post-production work done, you know, and I'm not saying with film, you didn't do that. You didn't do chemicals, certain chemical treatments and stuff like that, but that's the kind of stuff I miss. And I don't think we, we, we don't get that anymore. We don't get visuals like that anymore, even if they still look beautiful now. Film is finite, film is warm. So when you're going in there, filming with that, that, that can of 35 millimeter negative, it's like, okay, we've only got, so much time we need to set this we really need to focus this look whereas digital you're it's very easy to just go okay pop in another sd card and let's go and again film is just a very warm color tone look but that's the thing even things that are still shot on film today they'll just get processed later into digital Mm. and, and 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 just messed with to a certain point i mean you know Use licorice pizza, licorice pizza as an example. That's shot on film, and it still has that look to it. But even even still, it doesn't come out looking. This, I almost feel that they 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 purposely downgraded that to look worse than it probably did because they wanted to give it the feeling it was in the seventies. I really wish I could have saw, seen that in thirty in seventy millimeter. Yeah, I, always... I mean, I definitely. I mean, I don't know what they showed it to us on, but it definitely wasn't the seventies. That's for sure. I think there were some, the only thirty fives I knew of were at New Beverly. And obviously, since we're East Coast guys, we're not there. But I know 70 millimeter was in a couple theaters in New York. And then I ended up seeing it digitally because when it finally opened 
at my local is when I went and saw it around Christmas time. Oh, so I saw they they had we I had a screening at um, Directors Guild. Yeah, so they might have just still done digital there. Yeah, probably. Anyway, Rob Roy. <laughs> Rob Roy, ladies and gentlemen, not just a cocktail, but also Roy. a very sweeping <laughs> historical epic. Well, that's the thing. Like, it, I'm not saying it's not epic because it is an epic, but it's not an epic the way you would consider it when people know no, it's say it. very it's very personally scoped yeah and that made that's what makes it special now again this is my not my poor researching skills i have good researching skills this is my poor memory recollection because i didn't i don't write anything down <laughs> because i remember reading that they didn't get to shoot in the actual highlands as much as they wanted to um i can't remember if it was because of weather or time constraints or budget whatever so they're on a lot of different locks and glens around the area but I think I read that where Rob Roy's actual home is is where his actual home was in real life. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I found that very interesting. Let me look this up to make sure I am not now telling a fib and we're just going to go on like it's real. Yeah, um, but absolutely to your point, Rob Roy very much is personal stakes, very personal combat, and even down to the ending, like... The, you you really are expecting things to break a certain way and then it doesn't and it's like oh that's a pleasant surprise <laughs> and that's down you know that's what we're all about here on overdue rentals is a pleasant surprise that people may not have have gotten a chance to see because everybody bought tickets to braveheart yeah well that's even with that that final showdown you knew that who was going to win who was going to lose kind of thing but it played a lot differently than what would happen in a lot of other, a lot of other movies and a lot of other stories. Yeah, no. And that's where it really felt like that's where, like I mentioned it with, with Tim, it was the very much the Errol Flynn swashbuckling sort of swordsmanship versus, okay, we've got all these extras and all these weapons for a day. We're just going to pan over this field and you guys do the thing. Okay. I'm reading this now, and whatever I just said about the, his home is completely wrong. I don't even know where I came up with this now. Uh, the film was shot entirely on location in Scotland, much of it uh, in parts of the Highlands, so remote that they had to be reached by helicopter. Some of the scenes oh, wow. were filmed in Glencoe, Glen Nevis, Glen Tabert. In other scenes, Rob and his men passed by Loch Levin, Loch Moror. Loch Moror uh, started for Loch Laman. On the banks, oh, on the banks of which the real Rob Roy lived. That's I read it too fast and misread it. So Loch Lamond was used to fake where they couldn't shoot where he actually lived. Yeah. Now I will say that too. I, I, I rewatching it, I found this funny because Carter Burwell does the score, and I love Carter Burwell because Carter Burwell scores basically almost everything for the Coen Brothers and everything for uh, David Mamet uh, for the most yeah. part, as well as other things. But when he does that, I love. A lot of composers may not love him as much as others because he's a lot more of a minimalist in certain ways. Um, but I love the way his music matches the imagery, especially in Mamet and Coen Brothers stuff. But what I found very funny about this, it was not only so, I mean, he's got an, a, 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 like most composers, they have like a, a traditional sound, which you can you used to, you know, it's them. And this was not only so traditional, like, I'm like, I know this is Carter Burwell, but it almost felt like he was just doing a Scottish version of his Fargo score. A little bit. <laughs> like I could hear the same tone switches and no switches in certain places. 
I still remember the first time I, I knew of Carter Burwell was listening to a Spanish prisoner score. And that theme just drew me Wait, in. It's so good. It's so uh, good. Folks, that is, that's an automatic that we're going to cover around here because uh, Spanish prisoner is something that Matthew and I uh, bonded over because of a special face mask he has, but also just, it's that good of a movie. Well, well that, that's the one I wore today too. Actually. I think that was my first mammoth too. But I, I, I'm not going to veer up too far again though, but for Burwell, for as much as I love the scores he's done for a lot of films, my favorite thing in the entire world. And now I'm going to look it up because now I can't remember if it's him or not because now I know it's him. Um, but now I'm afraid I'm going to say it and it's not him. So He also did an amazing job on the Hudsucker Proxy. Well, I'm going to tell you. Um, the greatest thing in the world is, and I know it's his. I'm just looking it up again just to be safe. Yeah, okay, it's good. No, I know that. I know that feeling, my friend. You can see it. I mean, the song's great on its own. But you can go and watch the original trailer for The Man Who Wasn't There. His music on that trailer, the way it was cut together, I just, I'll put sometimes like put it on YouTube and let it roll on repeat constantly. Because so, it also got that, it's got that great Tony Shalhoub monologuing kind of over it at the same time. And it kind of makes it a little bit better. <laughs> but oh, the, the... so amazing. Uh, and I will say one other thing. So I will say my favorite film composer has always been John Barry because John Barry is the one film composer because I think a lot of, again, I'm not saying they're bad in any way whatsoever, but I think most film composers are so intent on making sure that the music matches the visual that even though people listen to the scores on their own, I just think it evokes the visuals. John Barry's music felt like music separate. It felt like just putting on a piece of great music, whether you saw it or not. That's why I always love John Barry. Oh, come on. You're, you're, you, know, you know who you're talking to here. You're talking to a Bond fanatic. I know. I... loves <laughs> John Barry's music to the point where the, the song to the knockdown drag out opening the Thunderballs, one of my favorite Bond cues, because it is literally just, you don't even need to remember the fight between Bond and Colonel Jacques Bouvier in like his, his widow's dress. You just hear that. And first of all, brilliant restating of the Bond theme where it's like, ba-dum, ba-dum, but then you have this horn section that's like, wow, 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 wow. It's like, you're hearing this thing. It's like, wow, someone's getting beat the fuck out of and I can hear it See, and I, I kind of like it. I was afraid to even almost bring it up because I knew, I knew what I'd get you excited about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but John Barry, like, you know, of course, he was more than just his Bond output. I mean, the man yeah. did Out of Africa. Uh, My Cowboy, what? classic, Somewhere in Time, Body Heat. Yeah. yeah, just all these other things where most people will know, remember that because that's his most prolific output. But again, you know, n- not everybody just remembers John Williams because of Star Wars or Indiana Jones. You know, the man also had uh, JFK. He had, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, some of his others. I, like I, he I, had I, go ahead. Go sorry. No, go ahead. No, go, what? Well, I was gonna say I didn't want it because I think most people who who want to like I'm not saying there are people out there saying John Williams sucks or that, but anytime you always bring up John Williams to somebody and you want to talk about him just being one way, they'll always bring up Catch Me If You Can. Oh, that was a be- that, that that film in every way, shape, or form is beautiful, and I want to talk about that. And the score is one of them. Because that's 
That's I, I swear he probably just slipped back into Johnny Williams at that point. Like that was Johnny Williams coming out to play. It's it, oh, we got this movie for like CBS's Playhouse ninety. Do you do you want to you know throw some jazz down for us and just it's. Also, that is one of the best looking movies that was transferred to HD. That I swear, if they transferred to four K, it'll look even better. But just like that is one of the best HD transfers I've ever seen. And I think Rob Roy also does really well transferring into the way of HD. Well, I will say that Rob Roy, again, as we talked about how great it looks, it's just so, I mean, I don't want to harp on it, but it's just so, it's probably one of the grainiest films I've seen. I can't remember seeing in a long time, but but in a good way, of course. Yeah. It's just, it's so obvious, but it's so beautiful in the same breath. It's like, you can't beat that. You just can't beat that. No, there's this wonderful classic Hollywood feel to it that, you know, you it, it, even if you just, you would only have to tone down certain aspects of the film and you could have released this in an earlier era. Like it wasn't even that far off base. Whereas you look at Braveheart and it's very brutal. It's very gory. Oh, no, I, I, no, yeah. Picture quality. It is Chris. No, I'm talking about gore. Oh, like, oh you're, talking about, you're talking about the actual content. Oh, okay, yeah. No, you look at Braveheart's approach to things and it's very gory, very torturistic. And then you go and watch Rob Roy. And again, I, I that was another preconceived notion where I go into this and it's like very reserved. Even the most heinous act is not exactly, it's not exactly dialed up to salaciousness. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, that's, it's a hard thing to talk about, I, th- I think. I mean, it's hard to talk about in any film. We've already talked about it. Uh, extensively with Tim, Tim Blake Nelson in another movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> apparently, whenever someone from The Incredible Hulk is on our show, uh, via bodily yeah, violence. What? <laughs> yeah. Ooh. Didn't even think about it. Didn't even think about it. <laughs> and they both chose it. What does that say about these? We, we we know how these Marvel people really think here, folks. Well, let's say all right. So for people, because Mike alluded to much earlier, because they said Tim Roth chose it. Basically, we had offered two movies uh, that we wanted to talk about with Tim. Um, yes, you had chosen Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and I had chosen Four Rooms. And because I, I thought Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is a great one because I think that is kind of more that point where he became noticeable to a lot of people yeah. who may have not known him before, which is why it was kind of my choice. And he came back and said, well, I want to talk about either Rob Roy or Vincent and Theo, another, which is a very powerful, well-acted movie but I felt Rob Roy was the right choice to go with because just as we're talking about, it's that big Hollywood blockbuster that even in its day somehow got pushed to the side. Yeah, and it's so a real- it felt, it felt like it matched over rentals so much. I'm like, that's what we should go with. No, it's a real sweet spot because sometimes, yeah, we're gonna mention movies like I, I had brought up Four Rooms, which is very obscure. I don't think you can get it on Blu-ray. I think DVD is your your only option unless it's on a, a uh, an obscure streaming service. But those are movies that are definitely more deep cuts for people. Rob Roy was a major release. It came out through Warner Brothers. It had an awards push. It was not something that was hidden. And it did well enough. And I'm sure this was a, a frequent flyer on HBO. Yeah. Because I think at this point, HBO had bought, was bought by Warner Brothers and basically it became like a, a, a repertory. You know, you could show My Blue Heaven five times a day and you don't really have to pay that much for it because your studio owns it and it didn't do so hot in the theater, even though it really should have. Yeah. 
Well, I will say that with all of this, I think it's time that everybody goes, watches Rob Roy, cross it off their overdue rentals list. Check out where you can see Sundown when it comes out on the 28th. It'll be select theaters in LA and New York for, for at first. Then it'll be available for people in uh, other ways later. Yes, and be sure to not make that an overdue rental. Mike, where can people find us? Ah, very good question. If you want the overdue rental show to not become the overdue rental, uh, not become an overdue podcast, you should follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rental Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you want to send us love letters, recommendations, titles to land uh, approximately a square inch in diameter or, or a square inch that makes us lords because they, they sell those now. Yeah. Uh, you Lord can, Greg Davies, Taskmaster. You can email us at overdurentals at gmail.com. And don't forget, find us wherever you stumble upon your great and lo- beloved podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify. I'm sure we're on Stitcher somewhere. Uh, Yes. I don't know if we're on ham radio, but we're working on it. Uh, we got to TikTok, so anything's possible. And don't forget, while you're there, rate, review, and subscribe. So you're always at the rental counter, and you can take a look at our Dropbox to see what has just come in, because I guarantee you, we only have one copy of Catch Me If You Can. And if you want it, you're going to have to really watch it like a hawk. Mike, bye bye Bye-bye.